Hey, everybody, welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today's episode is essentially part two of a conversation that we posted earlier this week over on our Blister podcast channel. And in that conversation, we sat down in Blister HQ with Charlie Dimmler, the co-founder and CEO of the Berkeley-based biotech company Checkerspot, and also Wonder Alpine founder, as well as Forefront Skis founder, Matt Sturbens, to talk about the creation of Wonder Alpine and its relation to and the mission of Checkerspot. And in this conversation, part two, we now are going to drill down on the creation and the future of Wonder Alpine with Matt Sturbins and Zan Marshland. And as you would expect, we are going to go into a whole lot of detail about their initial new ski offering, the Intention 110. And so, if you haven't yet listened to the Checkerspot episode that we posted over on the Blister podcast, you might want to do that first. Or you could start with this Gear 30 episode and then go get the broader backstory on the tech that we'll be talking about here. So, choose your own adventure on that front, but here we're going to go ahead and get to the conversation that I had last Saturday at Blister headquarters in Elevation Hotel in Mount Crested Butte, with Matt Sturbins and Zan Marshland. Well, here we are. We are back in Blister headquarters for round two, talking about Checkerspot and Wonder Alpine. Originally, I think we thought the plan was going to be record this bigger conversation about Checkerspot and the background and the backstory there. Then we were going to eat some food, come back and do this conversation. But then it turned out it was real sunny and nice out, and so we just went and rode bikes. Uh, <laughs> and that's what we did, and I think that was probably a good decision. I agree. So uh, it is now the day after, and uh, I am uh, here in Blister HQ with Matt Sturbins and Zan Marshland. And uh, today, the objective is we're definitely going to bring in a bit of the checker spot story that's going to be kind of unavoidable here when we're talking about Wonder Alpine. But you guys need to go listen to this other conversation that we will have posted uh, on Monday, the checker spot conversation. Listen to that. And then this is running on a Friday morning where we're getting into the, more of the details of Wonder and this uh, first new ski they've got uh, coming out here. So, Matt Sturbins, it's you again. Good morning, Jonathan. Talk to me a little bit about who you are, what you've done, what you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, mogul skier from Wisconsin. Uh, that's where it all started. So stereotypical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Fell in love with the movie Hot Dog. Uh, as soon as I got through college, raced the Squaw Valley, and within a week's time, I was skiing with legends of our young free skiing sport. And uh, that fast-tracked into uh, a career competing professionally in big air and slope style. I mean, heck, I even gave a hand at the half pipe and skier cross because it was all part of free skiing in the early days. Um, but I kind of hung up my, you know, my knee patches uh, <laughs> for twin tip skis. And at that time they were really inadequately built. So that spurred the idea, 
with a, you know, a degree, um, to pursue something in business, I launched a ski company called Forefront and I ran that, uh, out of Truckee, California, eventually Salt Lake for 16 years and sold that last, uh, I guess in July of 2017 to Jason Leventhal of J skis, formerly of line. And with Jay, I worked with him for about a year and then uh, decided to engage in an opportunity with Checkerspot, a materials innovations company out of Berkeley, California, which would allow me to stay in Salt Lake and take on the lead as general manager of winter sports. And that, that title was, was largely named in, in, in respect to the strengths that I had to obviously contribute to the project in that space. Um, we decided we were going to launch a design lab, a facility that would give us the ability to start prototyping materials um, shortly thereafter. And then through that process, we led to the evolution of Wonder Alpine, the consumer ski brand <clears throat> that we just launched in July and our first product, the, the Intention 110. Um, so through a long history of being a skier, originally from the Midwest, um, competing professionally and then getting into ski building, um, building skis domestically and abroad, um, this opportunity was just one which I couldn't pass up because it gives me an opportunity to really start to get hands-on with new materials. And that was something I never had access to. So excited to be working with Checker Spot. Ex really excited about Wonder Alpine and its future and this, the, uh, the nature that I'm working in a new field of technology with very familiar products. And that balance has made for a really um, exciting last year or so. Talk to me about the design lab in Salt Lake. So anybody who's tracked Forefront in the past, they'll know that we had like R&D prototype and small um, factory called the White Room. And that's what gave birth to like skis like the Renegade and the Raven, uh, which I know is a community fave. And then also a couple other more specialty skis. Um, and it just kind of brought ski manufacturing close to home where we were alternatively manufacturing the bulk of the production overseas. And when the sale occurred with Jay, we obviously condensed the Salt Lake footprint significantly and relocated the White Room to a dedicated space just so that we could do only ski development. And when this opportunity came around, it kind of spoke to my strengths and experience in building up a facility um, like I had previously with Forefront, but doing it in a new way. And I think we've all have aspired to do things a second time if ever given the opportunity. And so when this opportunity uh, came about, it was a completely new space, actually ended up being a brand new building that, that was suitable for our interests. And then, yeah, I mean, like from plumbing it and running three phase all the way to like fabricating a press out of steel with a friend and then start acquiring machinery. In some cases, like machinery that I didn't have the resources to acquire in my previous role. Um, you know, being smart about it, you know, buying a lot of things secondhand, um, being blown away by the variety of machinery available on the Salt Lake Classifieds was a lot of fun. I met some <laughs> hysterical people. The dude who I bought the CNC machine from was next level. I mean, this guy, what he was able to accomplish from a woodworking point of view in a two-car garage. Mind you, it was detached, but it was a two-car garage, no more. And the space that we've allocated to that machine is at least the size of a two-car garage. And somehow he had every other piece of woodworking equipment you can imagine nested. And I don't say like nestled or nearby, I mean nested. 
uh, it was hilarious to extract that machine from his garage. And um, yeah, working with Wintersteiger, you know, a local um, supplier for tuning, just been really fun to rebuild um, this environment and do it in a unique way. Um, so yeah, leveraging whatever, 16 years of ski building experience with Forefront, starting from ground zero, and already within, what, 11 months, we're running skis through serial production. And it's only because of those experiences are we able to move so steadily in, in getting this project off the ground. Zan Marshland. Jonathan Ellsworth. So you and I go back a ways. We do. When did, do you remember, when did we first meet? Like, email? No, or no, no, email meet. Email meet. Is email that, meet. I, I don't think that's a thing, but we'll just call it, you know, email meet. Know, people say like, nice to e-meet you in emails. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't do think that. that's weird terminology. Yeah. But um, so I believe you and I both met when I think I just cold emailed you probably around my sophomore year of college with uh, interest in reviewing mountain bikes. Yep. So, it, uh, yeah, it all started there, I guess. So the way this normally goes is I get some email from some kid and then I probably am just like, well, he's probably going to be pretty bad at this. So I'm not very interested, <laughs> but of course this is, you were another of the legion of Colorado college folk. So I was able to ask like 30 other people at blister. Like, what do we think of this Zan? You know, is this guy an idiot? Uh, does he know anything about bikes? And, um, they all said very nice things. And so, yeah, I guess that's how it came on. You started doing some bike reviews for us and then started doing more and more. And then the more I got to know you, I was like, this kid's actually pretty sharp. And uh, eventually got to the point, you, what did you study? So I studied environmental science yep. while also mountain biking and backcountry skiing a ton. Yep. I think that that's worth mentioning as part of my... Uh, education at Colorado College. Yeah. And you competed at CC? Um, yeah. Yeah. I was racing downhill. Yeah. Mountain bikes. Yep. Yeah. Let's just say of the group ride yesterday, I did not compete in DH. <laughs> and Matt is also like a wildly accomplished like moto dude. So um, I, I took third on the podium for sure. <laughs> well, that but was I that was an especially fun ride for me because first we went on Jonathan, your your cool trail riding loop that dropped us down in into the town of CB, um, and then we just pedaled up the the actual mountain. And Matt and I ended up going down Captain Jack, which yeah. was one of the trails that I would typically race downhill on in college. So it was very nostalgic for me. Yeah. Talked Matt through, okay, yeah, this is the perfect line. You got to balance on the shelf right here and then just point it through. That's pretty cool. So, yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm down to ride pretty technical stuff. I think the, th the interface between moto and mountain bike that caught me off guard is that my historical mountain biking experience was platform pedals, you know, riding the resort. I'm not clipped in, um, using gravity to kind of feed my way. And Similarly, obviously with moto, you don't clip yourself in. <laughs> so there's always that eject button. And then we roll up over like this rock garden section. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and it's primarily because I'm not doing that like fixed to that bike. Cause if like, I'm not familiar with how to get off <laughs> while clipped in <laughs> when like it's time to go ascend over tea kettle, yeah. you know? So there's an art to it. <laughs> Zan really impressed me with his confidence and just, yeah, just launched right through it. So that was really fun. 
Hmm. Yes. I definitely took a happy second on the podium. Yeah. So furthering this story, um, so Zan actually still reviews bikes for us. But um, we got to the point where he was just doing really solid work. We liked what he was doing on these product reviews. And so I'm not sure that I'm over this yet, but, uh, you know, we actually extended an invitation to Zan to come on as our full-time bike editor. And he was like, oh my God, that's like a dream job. I'd love to do that, but... But <laughs> and then he started telling me about this stupid company called Checker Spot that I'd never heard of. And he's like, man, there's just this interesting opportunity thing over here. And I just I think right now, like I might kick myself later, but I think right now I just I want to go. This lines up so well with what I studied in school and the environmental studies elements. Um, and so I was, I was pretty upset, but I was like, no, no, I get it. You go do your thing. So yeah. did I get that? I think that's roughly. I think, yeah, I think you did really get that right. And yes, that was one of the hardest decisions to make. And you hit the nail on the head there. Essentially, I mean, speaking as somebody that's interested in bikes, backcountry skiing, speaking as an environmentalist who studied environmental science and someone with a huge interest in product development. This was this crazy once in a lifetime opportunity to combine all of the, those things together in a way where we can actually design new bio-based materials with new performance characteristics. So there's that nerdy product development aspect of it. And oh, hey, this stuff happens to be bio-based. Doing all of that all at once, all that overlap of my interests, I don't know how you can really hit that in any other way. So yeah, it was cool. I was working with the CEO and he was telling me that he was recruiting uh, a, a recent graduate from Colorado with experience in backcountry skiing and mountain biking. And that was like part of my allure to like take this opportunity seriously because I had realized that the bulk of the Checker Spot team until then were very science-based. A lot of people were coming from uh, bioscience background, biotechnology background. And this was like a, a, a glimmer of like of light that like, oh, there's gonna be somebody I can like totally bro down with. Cause like, I really like prided myself over surrounding, I, I was really proud of, of the team we constructed at Forefront over, year, over the years. And so I was really like uh, curious about the team dynamic that would exist for us in, in, in going down this new pathway with Checker Spot. So like within like the first couple of weeks, I met Zan and he had published a review and he was like, oh, I just did a review on some mountain bike component. Check it out. And he sent me a link and it was blister review. And I was like, whoa, I know blister review. <laughs> I was expecting like a pink bike thing or some other type of site that I don't track at all because I'm not into mountain biking that much. Um, but it was like, a, like oh, okay, I, I know these guys. I've spoken with them in the past about ski stuff. So it was cool to like discover that overlap early yeah. on. And, you know, I would say if there's anyone who I communicate with, I mean, on a day-to-day -day basis with Berkeley, it's with Zan. Yeah. And it's fun for me on my end. Like, so I live in Berkeley, Matt lives in Salt Lake running the design lab. So I end up being a bridge between a lot of what's going on in the lab and the development of these materials and really just what the general vibe is and how we're tracking with what we're doing on the, the large scale checker spot side. And then also working with Matt on the direction of wonder Alpine. And then, yeah, it's, it's fun also 
at the same time to bridge the gap between science and outdoor industry. Yeah. And we always go riding bikes together. No yeah, matter, we do. No matter where. And yeah, I'm going to get my ass handed to me tomorrow on a road bike. So yeah, <laughs> break him in on a roadie tomorrow. <laughs> so pretty hyped on that. That was a pretty funny conversation uh, <laughs> hearing about this upcoming ride. Anyway, you guys did a good job actually touching on what wonder is, but let's, let's go back and just clarify this for a second. So when people are like, so what is wonder? Wonder is a brand owned by checker spot, the company. So we are the extension of the technology platform that is assembling the, pro- the materials that are created from the molecular foundry at Checker Spot into a consumer product branded Wonder Alpine. So when you think of Wonder Alpine, just know that we have the Checker Spot technology behind us and we have that infrastructure as part of our vertical integration. So when we're developing new materials, talking to different varying levels of technology, we're referencing the resources that are available to us in Berkeley to lead that innovation. And then we create that kind of physicality component of finding ways of introducing it in a whole life consumer product. I think the only thing that I'd add is just that Wonder Alpine is this way for us to animate the capabilities of CheckerSpot's materials platform. So that all seems very clear from where we are, but it is maybe less clear how we went from checker spot to deciding to like, well, let's start building skis of all the things on planet earth that one could start building. Yeah. So skis was uh, obviously a vision um, initially with the CEO, Charlie Dimmler. And I'll be honest with you. I tried to talk him off the the cliff several times. Interesting. You know, I mean, he he and I started talking several months before I even um, took the position with Checker Spot because I didn't I didn't share that vision. I had been in my like you know my shoebox of materials for so long that I had kind of given up hope that there may be a way that we could introduce materials that are application specific. So I was like, man, you really wanted like invest the time and energy to launch into a saturated market like skiing with this like really like robust and diverse technology platform that I can see like applications from like the tires on my car to the grips on my dirt bike. Like, I mean, dude, like Alpine skiing. And in the same context, like I'm basically trying to talk him out of wanting to ever like hire me because I never even thought that was part of the, the search and discovery of the conversation. I think we were just initially meshing on vision. And I was able to echo his position in the context of there is a lack of innovation. But he was like resilient that like, because of that, there is such a great opportunity to enter into this space because there hasn't been innovation like this in, some, in such a long time. So... The more and more I'd push, the more and more he would become hardened on his position. So I got really excited about this person. You know, I was like, dude, this guy, like bell rings, he's back in the ring. Like, I like this, you know, because it takes some fight. It takes some suffering. Like, you really have to work hard in this space to succeed. And I have the history to, <laughs> to show for it with Forefront. So um, 
you know, initially it was just like, yeah, let's explore applications as a whole. And I need to get up to speed big time on molecular biology. Cause I don't, I skipped that class straight up, you know, <laughs> like you found me like in the art department, you know what I mean? Like with pretty drawings and like getting into graphic design with like zip disks and CD-ROM. Like I was like not even into beakers and all that stuff. Like, I mean, I'm not even a pyrotechnic to be honest. I don't even really get off on fireworks. It's not my thing. Um, so you know, I needed to get up to speed on biology. I needed to know how to like at least decode some of the vocabulary that was being thrown my way so that I can understand the physicality of this material. And so obviously first and foremost, we needed a plant to do that. The The scope of resource we have in Berkeley from molecular level to materials is fairly limited, right? I mean, we can get to an index finger size material, which we can test in a variety of different ways that are really insane and helpful. But it doesn't give us that perspective of like, oh, I could see this being a really valuable material in a ski, for example. So my goal was to like create that jumbotron effect of like, all right, we're going to take this material and like build it like full size and start measuring it with like a sense of field testing, right? Because like we're only going to get so far with this data. And it became like this quick like, yeah, segue where we're taking materials that are really small specimen size coupons to a full life animated product and testing it in field. And through that process of learning about materials, we started to kind of look at ways that we would seek to commercialize the sale of this material for companies that were seeking solutions in spaces that we were, you know, we were seeing the application set for. And that process eventually led to the conclusion that, you know what, like there's enough curiosity around this technology platform that needs to be further validated for for others to understand that the easiest way to like get these materials uh, uh, vetted is to create a product that we could show in proof concept that these materials do matter and they're viable for this application. So prototyping skis, testing skis, eventually branding the ski Wonder Alpine and launching in July. And at present, you guys made an interesting decision with ski number one called the Intention 110. Talk to me a little bit about how you guys are positioning this ski or who this ski is for. I would say that it's a playful, balanced, and intuitive backcountry ski. And we position it for people that want to get out all day and tackle big descents, all earned under their own power. And that's a pretty interesting thing. I mean, honestly, if you know, you came to me and were like, hey, let's start a new ski brand and we're going to have one ski. I probably would have been like, okay, well then we're, we should definitely go like inbound ski or 50-50. Talk to me a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, as a avid backcountry skier myself, living in Salt Lake City, we have the luxury of incorporating backcountry skiing into like a, a, a daily routine, right? So, most early mornings, you can anticipate 50 to 100 backcountry skiers at trailheads up the big and little Cottonwood Canyons. And there you identify like with a small group of peers that are seeking similar objectives as your own, right? You see a wide variety of the backcountry ski demographic in those moments. And I've always prided myself on, we're all going to use the same trail up, but I'm not worried about where you're going to come down. And partly by nature is that like your equipment straight up can't provide you with the confidence to ski the terrain that we're seeking to ski down. 
And there's it's no cut on them. It's no cut on the equipment that they're choosing to use. They're just they they have a different balance of of priorities in their life. For me, backcountry skiing was always about escaping the crowds of mechanized skiing, taking my time, analyzing snowpack, much as we did early years and like hiking the pipe and and like understanding that craft. Similarly now in backcountry, largely trained by Hoji to like analyze terrain features step by step and like get a, a sense of the buoyancy of the snowpack. You contour a lot of aspects of the snow when you're ski touring. You know how the east face and west faces are set up the north facing, the south facing sides are set up. And that all builds the critical data you need to assess your descent. And so we're often looking at like free ride skiing options, you know, and nothing wrong with, you know, putting in your turns on open powdered faces. That's great. But like I'm much more uh, feature driven skier in terms of backcountry access. So our approach in ski design was to ensure that there was a good balance between uphill performance and also downhill capabilities. And so, you know, when we had to essentially build a vehicle to start testing these materials that were coming out of Berkeley, the last thing I wanted to do was like build like a super unique ski shape that in the room that we're in right now with a hundred amazing skis on the wall, that it would be like, 101th that you've never seen anything like it before, you know, super unique. Like, no, I wanted to play off of strengths that I had learned in the past about dimensions that just work well, right? Like here's the dimensions we're going for. Here's the kind of geometry I want. Here's the, the width proportions. And then I want to work with a, an engineer, a designer who I can relate to from firsthand experience, because I don't have the luxury of taking too much time with this project. We have a very condensed period where the snowpack is even worthy of field testing. And we were already entering into this uh, uh, project in the last quarter of 2018. So, um, you know, I got to give it up to Logan Imlock, who I had, you know, chatted with historically at his former role at Armada and what I was doing at Forefront, knowing that he had relocated up to AK and was pursuing work with PowSurf boards that he was making himself. Like he just can't, he can't get rid of the bug. Like he just loves designing skis and snowboards. Like that's his thing. And he's a structural engineer, I think, by trade now and growing young family. Kudos to you, Logan. Yeah, shout out to Logan. Yeah, totally. I mean, we, yeah. Incredible skier. But just, you know, our communication wavelength was super, super crisp. And because of all the other like modes of communication that I was now engaged in, I needed to have a very quick and fluid relationship with that designer. And we talked very specifically about this. Like, okay, so I had the kind of general architecture in mind, like we're backcountry's focused, but I don't want to build a ski that's like super unique. Even though we know it would have some pretty novel performance characteristics by shape alone, I need a good sturdy shape that I can just count on to start to identify the material characteristics that I'm going to put inside the ski. So give me like, a, you know, let's work together on creating a really proven um versatile and balanced ski shape so that we can really start to get the feel that we are seeking in these material applications. And so that's how we kind of ended up with the intention 110. Like I didn't want the shape to over um, power the novelty of the materials. So I know, you know, for the last 40 hours, you've been badgering me. I'm um, about to do it again. You're so like, go ahead. You're like, why didn't you just make another type of Raven? And I'm like, well, that's Hoji's jam first and foremost. Um, 
and bad respect to Eric as a ski designer. And that's also a ski that is niche in its intention, no pun intended, with its a very core specific interest in backcountry skiing, which I like that ski. I've been skiing all of his ski shapes for years now. But we needed a ski shape that also spoke to a broader demographic. People whose first choice wouldn't be that type of ski for its particular reasons of taper or full rocker or pintail, whatever you may be considered to be your favorite element, Jonathan. I have my favorite aspects of Eric's ski designs as maybe you have as well. And so the ski project that I had just gotten done working on was the MSP 107. And with my name associated with that and a hit list of objectives that season, I found myself knee deep in Japan powder, loving that ski. And I was like, I haven't skied powder on a non Hoji model ski in recent years. And I had a lot of fun with it. And in the same breath, like we were out, you know, skiing, whatever in a Seiko and like skiing resorts and then skiing side country and then hiking Mount Yote and like doing all these things. And I was like kind of impressed with the versatility. And I was also a little bit caught off guard by like how fun it was to just ski in a different shape. So I think it also was there to like appease my amusement to see how different ski shapes, while we may not classify them as specific tools, how versatile and, per, and performance oriented they can be. And so that's kind of what led my conversation with Logan. That's what it's ultimately what's evolved into the Intention 110 and the materials in which we have been obviously crafting to integrate into that application. Yeah, so to be clear, we, this is our second conversation and really the most important question from our first conversation was when I asked Matt why he hates vowels. And then the second most important question was, is this intention 110 just wider Raven? And we had some, I don't, heated isn't the right word, but Matt was kind of informing me that maybe, I think it was your term, so I'll use it. The masses maybe don't share my same love of the Raven, which made me start getting real sort of dictatorial about how the masses were wrong. So um, I don't know. I still think that is an exceptional ski. And we had actually a really good conversation. It's like, well, when you use that thing for what it was intended to be used for, turns out it's terrific. You want to know where it's not great? At the stuff that it was never intended to be good at. So, I mean, people are funny and like, come on, people. So I'm prepared to just say on that, and then I'm, I will actually drop this. Sometimes in life, you know, products or movies or books, they're like a Rorschach test. And you saying you don't like something says more about you than that thing. And that's very much what I think about the Raven. So like, <laughs> you're out there, you didn't get along with that thing. That's on yeah. you. Yeah. So. For the record, I like the Raven. I know you do. So don't pin me on that. I've not. I would never. Us against you. No, no. You're you're on the (laughs) you're on the right side of truth in in history. So, but let's talk a little bit, um, and we'll start with Matt. And I'm curious, Zan, your thoughts on this. So this isn't a Raven. You want to talk about any particular skis where you think like. Yeah, it maybe has, we, we kind of thought maybe there was some characteristics or some similarities to a ski like maybe A, B, or C. And I mean, obviously, we will then be coming in and we'll give our take on this. But just curious, I mean, I think every ski gets built with respect to kind of some reference points or the like. Yeah, I mean, we looked at a lot of skis 
obviously I had my experiences to draw from with Forefront, and I wouldn't say that there was any one particular ski that I had historically made that was like, this is it, tweak it left or right, and we're there. Results may, may argue differently from consumer perspective, but it's a totally new ski from the ground up with a completely different ski designer that I've worked with from my previous role at uh, Forefront. So it was a new relationship with an engineer who also had a completely different history working with a brand than I had. So there was really zero overlap in that context besides the fact that he and I were both professional skiers at a time and we had both had professional ski building experience, but we had no overlap in any, in any regard. We actually had never even, and still to this day, have ever skied together, which was a lost opportunity this season. The goal was to get up there and ski with him in AK. Hopefully next year, Logan. Um, <laughs> say that about everything. I'll get you next season for sure. Um, but no, like I initially was like, I want to make a 110. And there was some stakeholders early on that, um, you know, were part of this topic of like getting into skis and stuff who were tightly connected to the CEO, Charlie. And they were all a little bit hesitant to say, we're going after backcountry skiing and you're going to make a 110. And I'm like, yeah. They, like, these, these specific folks wanted to go narrower? Narrower. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, not, see, that's for me, that's where the divide is in the parking lot, right? I mean, objectively, you're limited. I don't care what kind of snowpack you're in. If you're on a ski too narrow, like there's a seasonal component to ski geometry. And in the fall and winter period of backcountry skiing, narrow is not always better. Very rarely is it beneficial spring all day long. Like if you can get on a narrow performing ski with good, like locked up high alpine conditions, you can be very dangerous. You can, you can arc turns and, and pivot quickly around features and get into those like closeout cruxes with confidence. Absolutely. I, I a hundred percent back that, but like when we're going into exploration mode with new materials in the, in the heart of winter, I'm like, I, a 110 for me, I'm even a little nervous is too narrow. I'm coming off Renegade 122s like on a daily basis because I just love having a secure platform. And when the snow changes, my posture and balance on that ski remains. And so the 110 was already something that was a, a bit of a balancing act with the team in design. And then taper was another thing. I was growing less and less um, into taper with some of like my like general ski geometry like interests. And Maybe because I had been on such tapered skis for so long. And not to say that the intention doesn't have taper, it does. But there's not, say, 10 inches of taper in the tip, you know, to where the ski loves to just skid in and out of its turns. Like, I kind of started digging that edge grip a little bit. Um, and then that started leading to, like, rocker profiles. And we tested a lot of varying skis, right? I don't think it's worth going into each ski name by name. But the, some of those skis are, are, are standing around us right now in this room, which is awesome. But... I found myself at a total crux internally as well as with others externally about rocker and camber, which is seemingly a never ending redundant conversation and debate topic. And it was at that point where I was like, wait a minute, you, you have your hands on the reins. You can solve these design restraints. So I was like, well, screw it. We're going to make this ski in two camera profiles. You see manufacturers today changing construction techniques in molds, right? And those are partly due to the nature that they are jockeying for diversifying the performance criteria. Oh, we made this ski, but we make a lighter version for touring. Okay, right? But the dimensions are all the same, more or less, and they strive to meet the same flex result. 
ultimately they're also seeking to achieve a wider variety in price points, which are very retail driven. So we can have this construction and it's cheaper than that construction, but that construction lends itself to be more for this type of skiing and that type of skier is willing to pay more for their skis. And I'm like, that's all nonsense to me because a ski shape is designed to do one thing and one thing particularly well. And so what affected my opinion on rocker versus camber is geography. Right. And in my most recent years working with Jay and the team back in Burlington with Forefront, I started to understand and, and develop a greater appreciation for East Coast skiers. And that while they are just as equally enthusiastic and active in backcountry skiing, their snowpack is vastly different than what we have in the Wasatch, which is considerably different than the Pacific Northwest and interior BC for that matter. So geography has a huge impact on the way the ski's soul interacts with the, with the ski surface. And there's certain stakeholders who I interacted with in the, in the vetting and testing and prototyping of the Intention 110 up north who are like, I haven't skied on a, on a camber ski in years. And they ski every day. They're backcountry skiers. And I wouldn't say they're necessarily product design type people. They don't necessarily articulate feedbacks uh, necessarily super well. But they can tell you what they like and don't like about how a ski compares to their favorite ski. And the bulk of, of, of favorites that I had come across in those types of, of geography areas, or in, that, in that scope of geography, was Full Rocker. And I share that sentiment. But I know that there's also that backcountry skier who needs that bite of camber when they're skiing just a little bit of fluff on hard pack. And that boot top pow experience can be way better with a bit of bite of camber. So I didn't realize that we may be differentiating ourselves so simplistically with the introduction of the Intention 110. But in the context alone of just trying to make skis more appropriate geographically, we're making all four sizes of our one model in two camera profiles. So if you want full rocker, we have that for you. You like that easy to pivot contact point directly underfoot, that's a solution for you. And we also have a traditional cambered ski with rocker so that if you need that bite, you ski that firmer snowpack, we have a solution for you there as well. So there's eight SKUs wrapped up around four sizes in one model to start. So I think that was a way that we were able to also balance in the act of introducing a single ski with the intent to be used primarily for backcountry travel because backcountry skiers have those types of preferences. And those are beyond the scope of like how surfy a ski may feel. It's where they like build confidence in their skis. And that's a big part of the relationship between the skier and their backcountry equipment is just establishing that basic confidence in the gear that they rely on. What are the lengths? So we offer the ski in a 171, a 178, a 185, and a 192. So we feel that that is a pretty solid range for a variety of expert backcountry skiers to get on the ski that they want. And then, of course, adding the two cambers in, you have eight skis to choose from. I'm curious, Zan, like either, you know, from your perspective as somebody who, you know, I like bikes and I like backcountry skiing, right? Mm -hmm. Or, so you can answer either just from that perspective is like, you know, I know you get excited about like new products coming into the world and we talk about these things all the time. And then there's a second perspective from like, you know, trying to, way in here, or you're obviously invested in like, what are we going to be rolling out as this first product? What was kind of the most surprising or most interesting thing 
in this process of coming together to figure out like, well, what are we going to roll out and why? Yeah, that's a super good question. I think for me, what was interesting was as we were prototyping these skis with a hundred different, and I'm not saying a hundred in any hyperbolic sense, a hundred different materials formulations that went into the ski as we were also playing around with different shapes and cambers underfoot. Um, there was a lot of honing in on what type of ski this is and who it's for and, and why we're doing this. And as we played with all these different characteristics, we realized that we had this really good opportunity to create something that we didn't feel like existed perfectly. And that was really a ski that you can ascend competently on and then still charge descents hard on, which I think really plays into Matt's style of skiing and really like the types of products that Matt has historically designed and how we're going to push those forward next. So I hope that answers your question. I mean, I think for me, it's, it's really just playing around with what is this material perfect for? And then how can we actually tweak the material to make it even better for a specific application that we've chosen? So let's talk about the specific materials in this first ski. Again, I, people will get a very clear sense of this if they listen to, I'm just kind of calling it our checker spot conversation. Sure, yeah. This entire company is not about committing to, it's not about basing everything we do, um, getting married to a specific material today and we're gonna make the next 10, 20, 30 years married to this same material. That said, I think somebody out there is probably wondering like, okay, so from a material point of view, how novel is this Intention 110 versus some of the other stuff I might be buying on the market? Tell me about this current model. Sure. So prior to my arrival to Checker Spot, there was already an active project developing a composite core for surfing. And that's a low density application, right? We're not thinking about the same type of stresses in surf as we would have in, say, skis or snowboards. So there was performance characteristics that they were seeking to achieve with an algal-based composite that was novel in its performance characteristics for surf, which would carry over nicely also for ski in terms of areas which we were trying to uh, reinforce performance as uh, ski shapes had obviously changed a lot in the last five to 10 years and skis were reacting differently than they had for decades previously, although they were still built out of the same materials that they were built out of decades previously the materials didn't advance at the same rate as shapes did. So we initially looked at this singular material that we had in hand for surf. We converted the formulation to a higher density, which speaks to Zan's point about how we had to basically dive into a very iterative formulary project of down selecting various different types of formulations based on character. That was a totally new experience for me making these little coupons, first identifying the composite itself, and then identifying the materials which we would use to align with it in, in form of complement. And in this case, compression molding, vertical reinforcement, right? So the end goal was to utilize this pre-existing composite that was initially designed for surf and still continues to, to build and, and, and be developed for integration with surf, 
but now also in a very in a in a different formulary um, composition for ski and integrating that into the ski core and that's where we come out with the introduction of the algal composite core and in this context like we're using a cellular composite derived from algae oil and complement to other fibrous materials in this case aspen and polonia and so we're able to achieve superior bulk to strength by result of having control over this composite in comparison to the different woods we're using, as well as we're getting a, a, a unique performance feel because of its cellular makeup. If you think about like vibration in context of science, that's frequency. Ways in which we can insulate frequency is by creating barriers of pathways for that frequency to travel through material. Fibrous materials, anybody who has smacked a two by four on the end of a table has felt the vibration or hit a baseball at the end of the bat. You know what I'm talking about. And so a cellular material is very insulating to that component. So it's a really unique balance in, of two materials with similar density and compression capabilities in terms of like strength. But we're getting a lot of performance from, from the smoothness and characteristics of that cellular uh, re, uh, reaction to the to the frequencies entered into the ski, as well as we're getting that kind of uh, light weighting benefit because we're not dealing with the density of that of like a, a hardwood, like an aspen, for example. But they work together in balance, and that was like the first like go to product application. And so now, like, I guess so within four months or whatever, I got that prototype off the ground. I, 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 as in we, mm -hmm. the royal. Right. <laughs> I think I think that's a big Lebowski thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I use it all the time. Yeah. 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 There's a huge, like, there's a huge team behind me. Um, and I could spend the rest of the time just introducing each of them. But so we got the ski off the ground. And then it became a, a, a project to then, like, use the physicality of that ski, first and foremost, to teach the technology team about all the different materials that go into a ski. Cause now we have one to show. We have diagrams and like everybody basically came to ski school in Salt Lake city and we set up a projector and we got catering and we had a team of like 13 scientists sit down and go through a crash course of ski 101. And in that process, we identified all the varying different materials that go into a skis construct. What's the primary function of each of those materials? How are those materials derived? And where is it that our current technology platform aids well in solving? And so while, yes, we had an a initial product, a, a class of integrating into the ski core, we're now looking at replacing several of the petroleum-based materials in the ski, which is obviously our core focus with the technology platform, is deriving new materials from a new origin. It just so happens that we're currently leveraging elements found in nature through microalgae which play well in creating new base oils. But being able to say, okay, like the sidewall of the ski, first and foremost, it's for its hydrophobicity. We don't want any, any water to contaminate that ski core, which we know is a porous material. So we're really, as skiers, seeking sandwich construction skis with like high integrity because we know, especially in the backcountry application, that those skis are not always going to be necessarily coming into contact with only snow. Right? We're skiing over stumps and rocks and all kinds of things. So we need lots of integrity. Yes, we need hydrophobicity, but we need performance. We need good bondability. We need great strength. We also need characteristics that aid in the overall scope of the use of that product. Damping, for example. And this is 
a long laundry list of performance characteristics that we feel are currently underserved with the box of materials that we've been working within for many years now. And so as ski shapes have evolved, new reactions in ski performance have come by, come to, to the surface by results. But yet we're still relying on old materials to solve those same characteristics and we're limited by that reach. So having a new origin gives us a way to reimagine the makeup of that material. We have an application. We have a technology platform. What are our goals? What are we targeting from a performance point of view? Can we improve upon? And let's get that integrated in. So as you mentioned in setting up this conversation, the ski very much is like a vehicle of exploration. It's the tip of our spear and all the future technologies will follow in the foil where we're looking at replacing certain petroleum-based materials, not just so that we can swap in more algal construct and say, our ski is now comprised of 40% algal. Like, we want to say that. But we want to say that with a performance-leading reputation. That, like, every time we introduce a new material, first and foremost, it's performance-centric. If it's not going to improve the performance, it's probably not a viable project for us to explore. And then as we explore these various different pathways, these materials become suitable for other complementary industrial applications. But we need a ski to prove it first. We need a facility to work within the confines of that material in whole, in whole form so we can learn about how unique its performance characteristics may be. And if we need to tweak it, we have integrated in the vertical supply chain with Checkerspot the capabilities of going back to the molecular level and reformulating that material to tweak the performance characteristics, build prototypes, get on snow. And that's a really unique opportunity and a very viable value proposition for us to exist in a unique space within what I consider to be a very saturated market. Let's talk about the weight of these skis. These are backcountry specific skis. And you said earlier in this conversation, the thing that literally every single ski company says about backcountry skis is that they're like, we made this ski to have like no sacrifice on the downhill. And then they come in at like 900 grams and you're like, you know, it's okay to just be like, these are uphill focused skis. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about this. Do you know, I'll be impressed. Do you guys know the stated weights of all four lengths? Well, or all eight skews that would, that would, you'd then get the A plus you'd get the gold star. Unfortunately, that would be, uh, like, uh, fortune teller type of skill set. Got it. Because some of those links don't yet exist. Got it. Um, I am proud to say that we just pulled the 192 off the press. Okay. Which is, as a six foot two frame yeah. skier, uh, a very sentimental experience, which I've uh, I documented and yeah. we'll be pushing out through social media here shortly. But we've only made the 78, 85, and now 92. Okay. And I can only speak to the weights of the 85, which was our prototype yep. uh, model. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, prototyping was a little short, to be honest. But for others, um, you know, it's it's actually a little long. So you have to find that middle ground. Yeah. I mean, you're a big dude, like 6'2", 200-ish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, I think for some of those out there maybe listening to this, it's kind of nice. Like when you're like, oh, so one of the key people designing this quote unquote touring ski with your background uh, and uh, we've never skied together, but everybody I've talked to, like Matt can ski a little bit, strong skier, bigger guy. 
that bodes well for those of us who sometimes find the perf downhill performance of backcountry skis kind of underwhelming. It's like you're going to skew a little bit to um, not underwhelming, I think it's fair to say. So you haven't said it yet, though. Stated weight of these 185s. Yeah, so the 85, our, our target was sub 2,000. Yeah. Um, our goal was around 1850. So the camber versions are just slightly south of 1850, and we're a bit north on the rocker versions, closer to 1900. Okay. Uh, for same size, same dimension skis in the 185. And then you willing to throw out, like roughly do we know where the 192 is living? Or specifically, do we know where the 192 is living? We don't. Um, it's going to be, I, I assume it's going to be um, about 100 grams heavier. Yeah. Um, It'll be around 2,000 grams. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a balanced weight. I think that's something that doesn't get spoken too much. The mass of the ski is largely underfoot, um, but it's a sandwich construction throughout. I don't really get down with the whole cap, tip, and tail. That, like, numbs the ski for me. I'm weird like that maybe. But so we run a full sandwich. Um, so you'll see a side reveal, um, full wrap. And... The bulk of the way the ski is underfoot, partly due to the nature that we reinforce the binding interface, right? No, I'm back from the early years where we couldn't keep pivot heels <laughs> screwed into skis. Uh, I have long been known to overshoot the uh, standard pull strength criteria of a binding screw <laughs> because that's only relevant so long as they actually torque the screw correctly. But most people just spin the screw until they can't spin it anymore which exceeds the average torque. And therefore you can just as easily pull out a heel piece if it hasn't been screwed correctly. So we run a pretty stiff screw retention program. Um, and therefore you'll see a bit of the mass underfoot, which surprisingly, uh, you know, for its weight, skis fairly lightweight because you're not really necessarily, you know, a, a, a noticing that extra weight. Um, from say like a super light 1500 gram ski or something. But yeah, I mean, for me, backcountry skiing has always been about the reward of getting to the top. Like I, I definitely, um, put some distance between myself and, um, the compatibility of tweaking Alpine bindings to work for touring purposes. I mean, yes, I was a day, um, Alpine Trekker user <laughs> early on, um, but, uh, and I didn't, you know, I, my experience with the Alpine Trekker is not bad. I might be an anomaly. Maybe I was too light on them. Maybe I didn't put enough hours on them, but like the Alpine Trekker was fine for me to get my, like, you know, my, my early years in on backcountry skis. And then Eric like was like, don't bring those to come ski with me. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, but I'm a bigger guy, right? Yeah. So that affected my confidence in tech applications, which, you know, I'm growing out of. I'm learning about the limitations that come with tech bindings. Um, and I think everybody can kind of find what works for them in that space. But you cannot sacrifice the mobility of a tech binding um, with any type of like, you know, alternative interface. And also like, it's really important that you have like torsional strength so of the binding itself, so that when you're side hilling on edge uh, on firm snow, which is typically aspects you don't want to slide out on, 
that you are square with the edge of the binding in your boot. And that tech binding interface is what really makes that um, connection secure. So more so than like the Trekker could deliver, for example, because that thing would just tweak out of place like crazy and then eventually break, I guess. So I've been a tech binding user, but the bulk of the way the ski's underfoot and the bulk of the focus has been around balancing the ski feel so that it's, it's, it's maneuverable uphill, but reliable downhill. And that's also like part and why like we've, um, you know, chosen the dimension and the running surface center of that ski accordingly. Like a lot of backcountry skis, even in this room, in my opinion, like they located the waist of the ski way too far rearward. And so you have this massive shovel, which I guess bodes well for ski racers who are used to loading the tip of their ski to engage their turns. But like backcountry skiing, I think you can be a little more dangerous with like a more like centered neutral position. And you can get away with bigger skis on the up track with a more centered mount because you're not having to like circumnavigate 80% of the ski's running surface in front of you on a kick turn, you know, and you're kicking tail clips off by result because you're just like so wonky out there. So, you know, I don't know exactly where the 92 will land in terms of weight, but I know it's going to be in, in, you know, it's going to be in, in target. So what is the specific mount point? Uh, of these skis how far back are we living how far forward sure so on the 185 we're seven back okay yeah so and the seven centimeters back is from true center right of a 185 which would be typically 92 and a half we're recommending 85 and a half up from tail and that's one centimeter ahead of the ski's narrowest point uh, at the waist geometry so there's a little room to move you know um we had a stakeholder mounted at waist because they liked a little more forward feel. Um, and we, you know, we have long debated, you know, what is appropriate in terms of suggested mounting positions of a ski. And I'm of the school of thought that we have one position that we recommend. And if for some reason that skier has a specific technique that warrants to be in a different place, that they can draw upon that location on their own but I don't believe in skis offering multiple mounting positions um, because the ski was tested and designed to ski well with a particular technique of skiing or at least a combined perspective of technique at a single location. If you've ever like tested skis, <laughs> not speaking to you, of once course, in a while, <laughs> you know how big shifting that binding forward or back, how that, how that difference is made, how big of a difference that makes. Um, especially when you're dealing with multiple core profiles, like this one skis great at like plus three millimeters. You're like, oh boy, you can really drill in, but no, but make noticeable improvements. Having said all that, you guys, my understanding is um, when people are looking to order these skis, there is an option actually, if somebody wants to, for whatever reason, get forward or get behind recommended mount, you guys are doing some in-house mounting, is that right? Right. Well, so I guess to take a little bit of a step back here, our holistic intent here with the entire sales process of Wonder Alpine products is to reduce the amount of inconvenience and reduce the amount of time that it takes from somebody to click order and then get those skis on snow. That's, that's fundamentally how we how we are approaching our sales platform. So we're selling all direct from the Wonder Alpine website 
And on that website, you can select how you want your bindings to be mounted in terms of, I mean, most people are probably going to go with recommended, but you can go forward from there if you want to. And then you can put in your boot sole length. And so essentially all you have to do when you get the ski is set it up for, like with your desired dins, and then you can get it on the snow. And then we're also doing other things, uh, for example, with pre-cut skins. Hmm. So that's, that's really the, the big picture intention with what we're trying to do with selling the ski. Um, and yeah, we intend to give as much customization uh, to the consumer as possible, even though we're selling through an online interface. What do these skis cost? They're $800. $800. Mm-hmm. I imagine there were probably some conversations about price points, right? I mean, normally when we're introducing new materials and all this talk about some pretty hefty R&D behind this and the like, I mean, I bet somebody who's listened for, you know, this this long into the conversation has probably been like, are these things going to cost like two grand? So 800, I mean, that's, I'd say extremely competitive in terms of the cost of a brand new pair of skis. Absolutely. And early on when I joined Checkerspot, there was a ski project prospectus that was created um, with existing team members who were not experts in this space. And they had initially targeted a price point that was super high. And I was just like, I can't morally get behind that. And they were like, dude, it's all you. Like whatever you think makes sense is what we're going to do here. Because they saw like, how are we going to amortize all the cost of development technology and all this stuff. And I was like, well, that's not the consumer's problem. problem. Yep. What we're here to do is solve, is create a solution um, for materials that we feel have kind of plateaued in terms of performance characteristic. And what we learn from the research of this application is going to pave the way for future industrial applications that we can make back costs associated with the per unit price per pair. So certain strategies that I've introduced and built on since that prospective was originally created was a direct-to-consumer model because that gives us the ultimate buoyancy in terms of managing our costs and also delivering a price point that is, I think, fair to the consumer, right? They shouldn't be penalized because you're trying to maintain a certain profit threshold internally that now all of a sudden the skis are $1,200 or $1,500. And also, I don't feel like our target demographic aligns necessarily with really high price skis, right? I would hope that like they're driving modest automobiles, carpooling, wearing their outerwear for multiple seasons, wearing boots for multiple seasons, um, to the extent of like re-gluing their skins, right? These are not customers who a brand should be expecting to also pay $1,300 a year for new skis. Maybe they will especially if you eliminate all the mechanized skiing, which ties up a lot of cost, knowing that the actual act of skiing is relatively free, right? With the exception of transportation to get there. But we want to create a very like intimate relationship with the consumer and with the consumers grow this brand and solve some of these problems that exist with new materials and launch this technology platform. And so $800 is a price point where I felt that's a strikeable price. 
that a consumer who we're targeting for backcountry specific applications, seeking out new technology, should be comfortable paying. Uh, I know I am in that space. And I pay that kind of price point range for a lot of other products outside of skiing, of which I'm just a pure consumer of, cycling, motocross, stuff like that. So I, we know we deliver good value, but we don't want to like make it hurt for, other, for, for skiers to join us uh, on this path. And so D2C gives us that like flexibility. It gives us that engagement with the consumer. It also gives us the ability to customize, right? I mean, we can mount those bindings for the skier up front so they don't have to run around town trying to find a jig for whatever binding it was that they chose. I mean, what is there, 100 pairs of skis in this room and there's 20 different bindings, 30 different bindings. That's 20 different jigs. Any one ski shop will not have every jig for every binding in this room right now. It's impossible, partly because a lot of them are demo bindings and (laughs) it's just not that popular because of a retail binding template. But still, it's a burden for the consumer to have to track down those templates those dealers who have the comfort in mounting skis with those types of bindings. Um, so we're going to handle some of that customization ourselves direct for the consumer. So which particular bindings, if I'm going to the Wonder Alpine website, I want to buy a 185, what binding options am I going to see there? Sure. We've aligned ourselves with Marker. Uh, it's a w- proven, really well-respected uh, independent binding maker. Um, that really, I think, offers the type of product line that complements our skis well. You know, Kingpins, Alpinist, from a tech point of view, um, are two really popular bindings and, you know, speak to the type of performance characteristics that we're seeking our skis to be capable of. So, I mean, we might grow that binding platform in future years. Uh, we don't want to overcomplicate it with a ton of SKUs. Um, but we also want to make sure, like, people who are deferring to us in terms of how should I accessorize my, my kit? I mean, this is a, we want to help eliminate some of those questions for the consumer. And just to be clear, it's what you're not saying is you should only mount an Intention 110 with a Kingpin or Alpinist. But if somebody wants to get that binding from you guys mounted wherever they want, you can handle all of that in-house. But are there any weird restrictions on what bindings you can put on this ski given mount plates or anything like that? No. Okay. And the only thing that I, I am limited of in the current scope of knowledge is what's an appropriate placement for a telemark binding to be mounted. Cause I know that there's like pin lines and telemark skiers have preferences and I developed an understanding for that application historically with Forefront over the years with various different skis that Telemark skiers enjoyed. But as far as like a Tele skier right now, we, we didn't test these skis with Tele bindings. And therefore we don't have like a, a really solid recommendation for how to accommodate um, that request. So for those Telemark listeners out there, I need you as early adopters to Wonder Alpine to get on some and then hit me back with some feedback so I can offer that insight for future tele skiers out there. And you guys are taking orders now. When would people be getting these skis or when would you be shipping skis out? What's that timeline looking like? 
Sure. So we launched the site July 8th. We had already started building skis by then and we're building skis every day, adding new skis to inventory. We've published a delivery date of October 15th and that aligns well with some of the accessory brands. Obviously we are a little late in engaging those companies with accessory products that we intend to sell with our skis. We are custom um, making a ski pole, but you know, just working out of the uh, on-hand inventories that were already pre-booked for Marker uh, in the U.S. in terms of available inventory um, and various other companies like Dekine. We're shipping all of our skis in a reusable Dekine bag to cut down on single-use packaging materials. And so, you know, I kind of had to hit them up and say, hey, like, I need a few hundred pairs, like, mm-hmm. I need a few hundred ski bags. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, like, that would have been good to know, like, back in February. <laughs> I'm like, why well, didn't, in February, I didn't know we were going to do this. <laughs> I, was, I was drinking beers with you at Denver at the trade show, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> tripping out on Grateful Dead stuff. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, we kind of put it out there as October 15th. And most of the orders that have come through, um, which have been coming in steadily since we launched, which is awesome, um, have added bindings and skins. Like we're doing black diamond skins. And like, I guess that order's ready to be picked up now. I just got notifications. So we'll, we'll beat the delivery deadline based on the size, you know. Uh, we haven't made E71s yet. So um, that's still up to come. But we're adding inventory in, in various different lengths. And so, you know, we want to get skis in, in skiers' hands well before the snow flies. I think that's primarily the, the main focus. So let's talk about the future. How are you guys thinking about where this goes? We're definitely planning on expanding the ski lineup. That being said, we're not aiming to be the type of brand that has 20 different ski models ranging from park to on-piste. That's just, that's not who we are. Um, but that said, we do want to expand our backcountry offerings and offer stuff that's narrower and wider, uh, and especially uh, respective to seasonality and geography, knowing that there are going to be people in different niches of the backcountry world that are going to be interested in this stuff. And then from there, we're definitely talking about split boards. We uh, definitely don't want to leave those backcountry users out of this. And we've actually already gotten a lot of interest from our splitboarding friends about that. So it, it feels like the right thing to do. But then looking beyond that into the future, I think it's important to understand that this materials platform that we have at our disposal is something that at its core makes new types of high performance oils with which we can make all kinds of new high performance materials. And that's really how we're going to center our product development in the future. And if you think about the variety of stuff in skiing and in the outdoor industry as a whole that can be benefited by new materials from new origins in terms of performance, there's a lot of stuff that we can hit. So the future is pretty exciting. Yeah, I've kind of looked at backcountry skiing, uh, speaking to Zan's point about the seasonality, like you kind of need three different types of skis. Uh, for how it is you approach the backcountry, if that's something that you're solely focused and committed to. So there's like a fall, winter, and spring, you know, type of like backcountry experience. And typically the fall is like pretty hollow. You get in a wide variety of snowpack. There's not, there's not much of a base. So you don't want to sink, but you also don't want to be like, you know, overly aggressive with getting too wide. And then obviously winter, you know, that's, that's game on. Deep skis, you know, wide skis. Um, deep snow, big lines, and then spring is technical. So we've got the 110, which I feel 
has been like a really solid performer from a winter point of view. But as we round out the quiver, I think it'll be considered more of like a fall and all around ski. And then we'll be advancing into like more of a winter with dimension and shape and then ultimately spring. So people can order these skis now at the Wonder Alpine website. Are there any other ways for people to get their hands on these things or check them out in person? Totally. Yeah. I mean, we're, our office is downtown Salt Lake City. Uh, we're 9th South, 5th West. So one of the very first exits um, when you're coming in from the airport or coming in on I-80 or down on the 15. So uh, we are opening up a showroom. Um, we have a lease agreement for that space. They're just wrapping it up. Again, another building. Uh, it's just like in the same business park as where the design lab is, but it'll be a dedicated Wonder Alpine um, kind of showroom and main HQ where we'll do all the fulfillment, um, binding mountings and things like that. We like it to be also like a circle up spot for people who want to go backcountry skiing. Uh, if nothing else is to like connect with others in the area um, and start to kind of build that vibe. Like this is an inclusive company, right? Like or an inclusive brand. And we want to welcome people to experience it with us. It's not an, an elitist thing. It's not an exclusive thing. Um, and so that's another way. And then we also want to welcome dealers who are focused on backcountry outfitting to like um, get in touch with us. And we'll hook them up with the, you know, discounted deal on demo skis so they can share the experience with their audience. And then as consumers wish, like they can order skis directly from those dealers. Those dealers will get a cut on the deal, but they won't have the burden of having to carry inventory and whatnot. And so, you know, we want to be as inclusive as possible and grow this community. And we know that there's people who want to kick the tires and flex the skis before they want to commit to buy, but we offer a money back guarantee. So all the things you come to expect out of modern day e-com, you know, free shipping, money back guarantees, all that stuff. I mean, it's what it takes to be in business today. And we just don't want to add to the burden of like boosting the super high retail price so that we can stock shops with tons of inventory and hope that it sells well for a profit. It's just not our business model. We've suffered rapid, rapid growth um, spurts in the past and given a chance to do this all over again, we want to take it step by step and do things the right way. What's up with the logo? The owl. It's a hoot. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, no. I had to say that. <laughs> I like the owl. I really like the owl. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, my point of view was we wanted something that would kind of uh, spiritually guide us on this journey. And we wanted to draw from something that exists within nature. And um, the spirit of a snow owl uh, really overlaps nicely with the brand architecture of what we want Wonder Alpine to stand for. And um, Zan and I were really hyped to like work with a branding agency to kind of develop that architecture and ultimately like animate that vision for something that really stood out and was unique to the identity of our brand and just the category as a whole. You know, I mean, of course it could be mountaintops with something and a clever way of using the letter W and not to say we didn't go down that route. Oh, we did. <laughs> yeah, very early on, we uh, looked at a few different logos that we were playing around with, with mountains in them. Uh -huh. And then we're like, do we really want to be another brand with mountains in your right, logo? Right. I think we're good. So yeah, we really wanted a mascot. We wanted some kind of memorable symbol. And for us, the owl kind of evokes awe. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen an owl when you're out on the skin track. You don't stop talking about that yeah. for the rest of the day. That's like a highlight of your day. 
and just kind of the sense of awe. And that's the, the kind of thing that we also want to connote with the types of products that we're making that help access these experiences. So it felt like a, a fitting mascot. Good start with that owl. I'm glad you like it. Yeah, I do. It's been one of those things where we're like, do people like this? So it's yeah. good to have your approval. You know, it's, I mean, on the one hand, you know, Matt, I like vowels, you know, so we can, we can, we can have our differences on that, but we are in solid agreement on this owl. I'm going to send you a t-shirt design with blister disemboweled. And you're going to be like, that's dope. <laughs> and I'll be like, see, like it just all of a sudden just like transforms a word into a logo. And you're like, man, like the design characters is the way that that like plays off like the T and the R. I didn't see those lines coming to get like, okay, you wait, you wait, I'm going to disemboweled you, bro. That sounds, sounds like a threat. That sounds so threatening. Um, this is the most I've ever talked about disemboweling in you know a 24-hour span, really. But um, it's pretty funny. But um, well, you know, before you do that, you know, send me an owl T-shirt, oh, just, just with the owl. Done. Yeah, and uh, I'll, I'll I'll rock that, and then we'll see. Maybe you're right. Maybe I'll be like, I've screwed up all these years using an I and an E in blister. And it's just way better this way. Well, we all know it says blister, and I think it fares well with the consonants that everybody will be able to make that out. <laughs> They'll probably be able to figure that out. Yeah. Um, well, guys, thank you. Um, this has been a good introduction to me. I've learned a lot the last couple of days. And um, next step, I guess, for us is, well, we're looking forward to getting our hands on these things and kind of doing what we do. But uh, it's going to be very interesting to see where this all goes. And... Uh, yeah, thanks for coming out. It's been good to have you guys, and uh, let's go eat. Sounds good. Let's go okay. eat. Thanks All right. Man. All right. That's it for this edition of Gear 30. Thanks to Matt and Zan for the conversation, and you can learn more about Wonder Alpine and the Intention 110 over at wonder-alpine.com. And, of course, that's wnder-alpine.com because Matt Sturbins hates vowels. I also want to thank Luke Alley for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. And if you are enjoying these Gear 30 conversations, we would very much appreciate it if you would spread the word to your gearhead friends and leave us a nice rating in iTunes. Thanks, everybody. Now, please be safe out there, and we will talk to you again next week.